season four of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you joined me today. Before we get started, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to all of you that have subscribed, listened and reviewed the episodes. I really do appreciate you taking the time. Welcome to the next episode of the Art of Teaching podcast. I have the great pleasure of introducing you to another phenomenal guest, Dr. Fiona Young, an architect and researcher in the field of learning environments. Conducted through the Innovative Learning Environments and Teacher Change, ILETC project at the University of Melbourne, Fiona's PhD research identifies strategies to support leaders in recognizing and using the affordances of innovative learning environments. In this episode, we talked about the role of affordances in learning environments and how to create your own amazing spaces for learning and why they matter. Core to her role is enhancing learning opportunities through design and interpreting and bridging understanding between educators and architectural teams. I hope that you get as much out of this wide-ranging discussion with Dr. Fiona Young that I did. Please enjoy. Dr. Fiona Young, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Where are you phoning from? I'm phoning from Sydney and thanks for inviting me. No problem. It's a, uh, you're obviously, as we all are, working from home and trying to juggle family life, professional life, relaxation. How's it going for you being in lockdown? Um, We're definitely looking forward to the end. I've got a Well, we live in a terrace house here, and so there's two of us working, one in the attic, one in the space I'm in, which is a spare room, and a daughter, a nine-year-old daughter downstairs who's in year four doing the learning. Um, So it's challenging. Yeah, it's very diplomatic. It's chaos in our house, (laughs) absolute chaos. I'm at the dining room table, my wife's working in the bedroom, and uh, my kids are at daycare, and that's the only time I get to do anything, so... Um, I think we're just, uh, we're getting through it. It's not always pretty, but um, we're looking forward to uh, uh, to the day that we can actually go out and see people, I think. I'm sure. Same, yes. Um, quite possibly uh, the most important question, uh, what is your coffee order? <laughs> well, the funny answer to that one is that I love the smell of coffee, but I don't drink it. Fascinating. <laughs> did you have a bad experience with coffee or did uh, do you just not like it? I actually do like it, but um, I think that my natural propensity is that I'm on a bit of a high anyway, so I don't actually need the impact of coffee. Fantastic. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense. You do, uh, um, you do seem like you probably don't need that anyway, like you're already naturally quite uh, curious and excited to be alive, so uh, maybe caffeine will tip you over the edge. Who knows? Do you enjoy uh, hot drinks at all, like maybe herbal tea or... I have been drinking turmeric lattes. Lovely. Isn't that that quite nice? Yeah, I I haven't managed uh, to get into those. My wife's into them and I just, I don't really like the idea of turmeric and lattes, but maybe I'll have to try it. Definitely definitely worth a try. Fantastic. Um, (laughs) What is a book uh, that you have recently read um, that has had an impact on you? It could be within your field um, of architecture and design or it could be much broader than that. Yeah, this is this one. I hope it doesn't sound like I'm trying to plug a book that I'm working on. <laughs> but um, at the beginning of the year, I started co-authoring and the next edition of a book called Managing the Brief for Better Design. Wow. And as part of that process, so the two other authors, or there's three other authors, actually, they're all in the UK. One of them is 83 years old, has been in the field of strategic thinking and design for decades and decades. And being part of this book with them has really exploded my thinking in terms of design and the process of design and how you do it for a sustainable future and and what you need to think about doing it in a meaningful and ethical way. Interesting. Yes. Yeah, so it's really made me question, you know, what I do in my practice. Wow, that, that's fascinating. And, and um, for those people that are not familiar with your work, um, when someone asks you, what do you do? Uh, how do you answer that question? 
Well, that, that's a really hard question. <laughs> it is a hard question. But, and partly it's because I'm juggling multiple roles. So one is that um, I'm a co-director of an architectural studio, Hayball, in Sydney, in the Sydney studio. I'm doing this co-editing of the book that I just mentioned. Um, and I recently finished my PhD, which was through the Learning Environments Applied Research Centre at the University of Melbourne. And so I'm still collaborating with my supervisor in particular on publishing papers and and then I've got this nine-year-old <laughs> <laughs> yeah in terms of what when I tell people what I do apart from the array of what I do um, somebody nicely described it as being a navigator and that's very much around being this bridge between education or educators and designers in rethinking the types of spaces and experiences for the future yeah. and helping them navigate their way through to get the outcome that they aspire to. Fascinating. I have, I have so many questions. Dr. Fiona, can you talk to me a little bit about your research? Sure. So um, my research is about the affordances of learning environments. And what I mean by affordances is that it's the relationship between the environment and the user and the opportunities that that offers for the activities to take place. And so from a school perspective, it's in the context of the physical environment and the types of teaching and learning activities that can take place as a result of the space. But the thing that's really interesting about affordances is that these spaces don't get used unless the users can perceive the opportunities of that space. Fascinating. And that perception is dependent on the user's ability and their intentions of using it. And that is influenced by the socio-cultural context around them. So the school culture. What were some, some of your assumptions going in uh, to this research and did were they correct or did you have to redefine some of those assumptions that you had? Well, I think the project assumptions were that architects were much more familiar with the opportunities of these new learning spaces because lots of architects were designing these mm. things that are called innovative learning environments or ILEs, um, but they weren't necessarily being used well by teachers. But in my research, when I was looking, my, I had two parts. The first part was understanding the perceptions of teachers and designers of these different types of spaces. Um, and so in that part, what we found was that teachers were recognising way more than architects in these spaces, way more opportunities for learning. And what that points to is the differences, the different pro professional perspectives of architects and educators and the fact that we really need to work very closely together to develop a common language as we're designing and developing these spaces together. Wow, wow. That, that's so fascinating. And it, it sounds like in many ways that you're kind of, your research was sort of sitting on the fence or building a bridge between the experience of teachers uh, and also that of architects. And as you said, really trying to bring these two, um, uh, these two fields together. Do you have a, like a favorite architectural quote um, or one that um, really encapsulates uh, uh, what you were investigating? I do, in fact, and that's partly because coming from, well, I think architecture is quite a traditional profession in the way it's taught mm. and people's perceptions of architecture is that it's about designing buildings. Um, and, I, and what my research does is really delves into the opportunities and what the role of an architect should be. And there is a favourite quote that um, is from Herman Hertzberger, who's this incredible architect who was doing amazing things um, from the 60s and 50s. But what he said is, architecture has unfailingly approached the designing of schools from a less than critical position. All the while, it seems, architects meekly followed their briefs and were mainly concerned with formal aspects of the exterior without busying themselves with spatial opportunities that might lead to better education and the role they themselves might fulfill there. Gosh, well, yeah, that's, that's fascinating, it is. isn't it? Well, it's, it's definitely a call to arms for architects to really look outside their own 
boundaries to really understand and step into the worlds of their clients. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And it seems in many ways, just as teachers have to rethink about their approaches to teaching uh, pedagogy and methods and to, uh, in many ways, question some more traditional methods. Uh, that is also the case of many industries, including uh, architecture, to really get back to the uh, the, the purpose um, of why they are doing what they are doing. Um, That's right. And actually, that um, what you mentioned about teachers revisiting what they do, that actually relates to the second part of my research wow. because recognising that perception is the critical thing to help these spaces be used the way in which they're intended. Um, I looked at strategies to support teachers to transition their practice to recognise spaces of resource, so the affordances of the space to help them pick up the opportunities. Yeah. yeah. And so I learned so much from, from that and used the techniques used there, working with my teams of architects to help them transition and rethink about what they do as well. It's interesting, isn't it? The, the, that whole notion of, um, of perception. Um, would you mind maybe unpacking uh, what that means and why that is so important? I guess the perception is our, our own beliefs and mindsets around any particular context. Mm. And what's really interesting is that every single individual perceives the world in their own way. And that's because we all come from different backgrounds and contexts. Yeah. And Therefore, in, in relation to these new learnings, when you come into a new learning space with all these different teachers coming to use a space that can be used more collaboratively, they bring different baggage with them. Yeah, yeah. And what's really important to help them shift their own mindsets is to be able to reflect on the past and to discuss this with other people, to understand what other people's perceptions are, to come to a common understanding. Yeah. of what these opportunities are, of these spaces and how they might use them together and what the protocols they might need to use them together are. I'm just curious, when you uh, think of the, the term design, uh, what comes to mind? I reckon it's changed from when I first started training as an architect. And now when I think of design, I think what's critical is it's about process, bringing people together, understanding what the context is, negotiating, understanding, problem seeking in order to problem solve, to come to a new and innovative response. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a wonderful, a wonderful definition. I, I'm just uh, curious, Fiona, uh, when you're constructing these spaces, um, these incredible learning spaces, um, does it make you think about who the clients are? There's obviously the paying clients, which are the schools or the governments, and also the, the students that will learn the spaces. I think you're right. You've got your paying clients, but actually I think of everyone who has a stake in this building as a client. And therefore that's why this process is so important that you actually have to bring in your end users into the process of design so that they, and well, also that we all collectively can develop this shared intent yeah. so that they have an understanding of how this building needs to be used or how they need to think about transitioning practice yeah. to use this building because in a way the project isn't a building the project starts in a sense when this building is completed for yeah. all those people because they need to carry the life of that building forward yeah it does make me wonder um how we we, we don't often consult the students uh when we're thinking about uh curriculum design when we're thinking about designing spaces in classrooms and they are the ones that are going to be using those uh those uh those spaces and i think quite often as educators we make assumptions without actually asking the most important stakeholders which are the children. a bit of a renewed focus on the way that we use and interact spaces when it comes to learning um well i guess if we think about the way schools have been designed traditionally which was the cellular box classroom in the 80s <laughs> yeah. well even in the centuries ago uh, yeah that was designed for a particular type of pedagogy which was around this idea of educating lots of people quickly yeah. and educating them with particular skills that they need for their jobs um, back then and 
in a sense, that model has perpetuated. Mm. You know, so we all, for the longest time, when we thought about schools, that's what we thought about in our minds. We thought yeah. about classrooms, teachers at the front, students yeah. listening. And so I don't think people thought so much about the space. It was just um, the expected thing. Yeah. But I think more recently. So important. That, yeah. People have been thinking a lot more about learning. Yeah. You know, yeah. what does learning mean? And particularly what does learning mean in yeah. this day and age when the world has shifted so dramatically from when those wow. original schools were designed? Wow. And um, so therefore, there's been questions about what type of space, wow. what's the type of learning that we want our yeah. students to have now and into the future. What are some of your favourite spaces? They could be schools, they could be, I know you worked extensively in museums, uh, they could be cities. What are some of your favourite spaces that you've been to? How do they make you feel and why are they so important to you? Okay, um, Very good so point. many, so many is yeah. one of my favourite spaces, but um, if I start with an urban space, yeah. for instance, I live near Central Park, Yes. Which is, you know, across from Broadway. And um, I feel like that space has been really well designed. And you can feel it when you go there because of the life of the space. And, and the life of the space is very much because of the types of affordances, if I can use that word, which I'll yeah. probably get to talk about later. Yeah. In the spaces, the opportunities for different types of people to engage in different types of activities. And you can see that it brings um, multi-cultures, multi-generations together in the one space to have that vibrancy and to have that wonderful sense of community. Yeah. yeah. So that's a really nice example of a, of a contemporary yeah. piece of yeah. design. I remember I, I, my undergraduate, uh, sorry, I did my undergraduate at Sydney Uni, and so I remember walking past um, what used to be in that space uh, for many, many years, and it has been, it has been transformed, and I, I think it's it's really lovely to see uh, some of those organic or those natural connections. I mean, you walk through the space, and there are people there, um, like you're saying, of all of all ages and of all ethnicities, talking and collaborating together and having food and kids playing and running around and it's such a beautiful um it's such a beautiful it almost feels like an oasis like you're not actually in the city but of course you are in one of the most <laughs> densely populated parts of the city at Broadway um are there any other um like I said you worked extensively or you worked extensively extensively in exhibitions um, what what are some of the important features of ex, uh, exhibitions and, and how do you create those spaces? Sorry, are there any similarities between those spaces, educational contexts, and also uh, the spaces that you've described at Central Park? Yeah, well, I really like this. I like being pushed to think about the relationship between museum and mm. exhibition spaces and learning spaces. And I yeah. guess it's really interesting that you bring it back into other types of spaces too and I, I guess the really nice thing about um, exhibition or museum spaces is that, is that they are about enabling people to make their own choices to find what mm. draws them to it yeah and as as a designer of those types of spaces you have to you think so much about people's experiences yeah and um, and also that the content of an exhibition or what a curator's message or story is and what the objects are and how to bring them to the fore in a way that the visitor would like to engage and delve in deeper and find more about it. Yeah. yeah. I think for me, um, and, and this was something I didn't realise till much later after my early career as an exhibition designer, um, but there's this really great relationship between designing learning spaces for student-centered types of environments where you mm -hmm. really want the learners in these spaces, whether they're students or teachers, yeah. to find their own paths of things that engage with them yeah. in different ways and to be able to be empowered wow. to, to pursue yeah. that path. Yeah, it, it's so interesting, and it, it 
just when you're talking, it made me think about the Museum of Contemporary Art, um, which is one of my one of my favourite spaces. Um, and uh, to be honest, um, modern art for me for many years, I always found sort of quite intimidating because I wasn't really sure what to do with it. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how to engage. I didn't know how to interact with it. And one of the things that I, I, I love so much about going to the MCA or the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney is that I feel like I can engage um, I can engage and approach these exhibitions in my own way. Uh, and so I can either go really closely and really look at them, I can step back, I can appreciate them in the broader context of the exhibition. And it's a space which is, um, which is so non-confrontational and also such a collaborative and a really beautiful space. Um, and I'd never really thought about, and until I uh, started looking through your work, I never really thought about why that was the case for me in the MCA. Um, and it's, it's, I think it's really beautiful to see, um, like obviously that is done intentionally. Um, that's not an accidental space. Someone has actually thought about the set out and the layout of this particular exhibition. Um, but um, it was the first time I just realized the importance of spaces. And I also think about the, um, uh, the uh, Frank Gehry building at UTS. Um, I just remember Stan and my wife, I used to work at UTS and, um, any opportunity I could uh, get to go and pick her up and just stand in front of the building and look at it. Uh, I, I was late many times to pick her up from work because I was distracted by the building. Um, but that is just, in another way, that is just so captivating um, and so unusual and, and so unconventional. Um, how do you respond to uh, buildings like that? I mean, do you, do you, what do you think about the Frank Gehry building or the, the um, uh, Chow Chuck Wing building? But how do spaces like that make you feel, ones that are unconventional? Oh, I, I think unconventional spaces are fantastic because, as you, you say, yeah. Yeah, they, yeah. they do make you pause and stop and look at your surroundings and actually soak them in a bit and, and appreciate and enjoy them as opposed to, things that are more run of the mill that you probably don't even really think too much about. Yeah. You don't think about the experiences that they bring. Cause I too remember the first time I went into that Chow Chak wing building and how exciting it was coming up that uh, silver staircase. Absolutely, yeah. Coming into those, uh, what were they called? The, the informal learning spaces that brought lots of different people together, kind yeah. of like the, the airport lounge. And that was relatively early in that, for having those types of spaces yeah um what are what are some of your what are some of your favorite cities i there's a few favorites i've lived in lots of places around the world so which i feel really lucky to have experienced and so if i had a, if i can respond with a few places of course i was thinking palermo okay in sicily wellington in New Zealand. Interesting. And Berkeley in California, which is where I studied for a year in the 90s. And obviously think, very different space or very different cities. I'd be fascinated to, to find out what your experience was and also why. Yeah, that they are definitely very different qualities of city. But there's something very much around the idea of this melting pot mm. um, of bringing together in quite an intense way. Like I think with Wellington, it, it's the geographical landscape, which mm. brings the city right into the, this quite small pocket with the beautiful water out in the harbour at the front. And yes. there's, there's this melting pot that brings together kind of quite a creative, vibrant hub. And then when you're in Palermo, it's just craziness with um, almost <laughs> like the ruins and, so much life of contrast. people and contrasts around yeah. you. Yeah. And then I think with Berkeley, um, I mean, that again is an incredible melting pot as a university town. Yeah. Um, but for that one, it was, and, and also there's so much history there. Yeah. Um, and, and also because of that diversity and this incredible, the there were so many opportunities because of this university town that, I, th I think it, there's just incredible life and inspiring people and yeah. opportunities for incredible conversations. Yeah, fascinating. Um, we have a, um, uh, so we have both studied at the University of Melbourne. Uh, I recently uh, did my Masters of Instructional Leadership down there. Uh, Sydney and Melbourne are two very, 
very different cities, aren't they? Uh, in terms of layout, in terms of accessibility. Um, if you could change one thing about the way that Sydney was laid out, uh, what would that be? Ooh. This, these questions are not on the brief that I sent you, so we can always loop back to that if you like. Uh, no, that's okay. What would I change about Sydney? I think I would make it so that there's more external opportunities for people across the whole city, because I feel like Sydney is pretty inequitable as a city. There's so that idea of accessibility? Accessibility to the outdoors and also thinking about outdoor spaces for play. Wow, fascinating. And look, um, Dr. Fiona, there's been so many, uh, there's so many common threads that I'm starting to pick up, like words like collaboration, non-confrontational, accessibility, equitable, like all of these sort of ideas that have really got me thinking about my classroom for when we finally return back to school, uh, about what are some of the important things uh, about these spaces. And if you wouldn't mind, let's take it back to the beginning. Uh, why did you, uh, so what were you like at school? And also why do you think uh, you have ended up um, in, uh, in such a, a fascinating career as an architect working with schools now? Um, what were you like at school? Um, I, well, I think I was probably a relatively good kid. Yeah. But I was also interested in lots of things at school. So on, on one level, I was, part of the athletics team for a number of years, but then I was also not bad academically as well. So I was able to balance those things. Where did you go to school? Just out of interest? Logan Park High School in Dunedin, New okay. Zealand. Okay. So Fiona, is there a teacher that has had a significant impact in your life? Take us back to when you were at school. Okay, there was, and that was Mr. Warburton, who taught me social studies Amazing. <laughs> when I was in third and fourth form, maybe even fifth. And then in the sixth form, it was geography then. And he came up to me out of the blue and said, have you ever thought about being an architect? And it had never, ever crossed my mind. So he then helped me um, get a work experience opportunity, which I believe was at his cousin's architectural practice in Dunedin. Wow. I know. And so after that one week of um, doing that work experience, I thought, wow, this, this seems like this could be a really great, exciting thing for me to pursue. So that's when I studied architecture. So, so why did, I'm just curious, why did he think architecture would be, I mean, it's obviously, it obviously was a great decision uh, for you to go into architecture, but, but why did he think that you would thrive in that particular industry? It seems a bit left, a bit left field um, during a geography and social studies class. But um, yeah, why do you think he said that to you? I would love to know as well. And, yeah. and I'm actually friends with Mr. Warburton's daughter. Lovely. Um, and about four years ago, maybe five years ago, before, sadly, before, I mean, yeah, before Mr. Warburton passed away, sadly, I connected with him again and I asked him, but he couldn't remember why. Did he remember the conversation? Not really, but he was, because of my friend, he was always conscious that, that I've always said in a number of yeah. times it was because of him. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? And, and I, um, I don't know who said this, but I, I remember somebody telling me that it's very difficult to connect the dots looking forward, uh, but looking back, it seems to make sense. Uh, does that career path... Did that make sense to you? Do did you sort of have a natural uh, propensity to to, to uh, appreciate and understand spaces? Did you were you particularly uh, critical or observant when you went when when you went into a space that you didn't like? Or does it, I, I think I don't I don't know. I think it might have been just the way that I represented and drew things. Yeah, wow. It's part wow. of it. But I think that comment that you made when you reflect back things make a lot more sense for me that really does resonate in terms of my career because I feel like I haven't had um, a, a linear Great, career path yeah, by wow. any means and that's what's led me to this funny hybrid position that I'm in now wow wow that, that's really interesting and and that's one of the common threads with 
so many people that I've spoken to on the podcast, including people that I thought, surely you are so well accomplished. Surely it was a clear linear path, like because to be able to achieve what you had in your lifetime, it doesn't really, you need to kind of get started at an early age. But so many people I think have, at least the, who, who I've interviewed, have really followed that curiosity and that um uh, that those kind of breadcrumbs to particular uh, different interests and why move from designing exhibition spaces to designing schools and learning spaces what was the transition from that uh, like for you um it was really interesting because i i loved exhibition design and in 2006 i moved to dublin to work and because there was this boom over there and they were desperately looking for designers. And so I moved to a company that actually did retail design because I thought it had a really strong correlation to exhibition design. And at the time I realized it wasn't as great a connection as I wanted at that particular point in time. But then I worked for a company where I worked on a school and that was really inspiring for me. And one of the things I, I learned when I did exhibition design was how much joy it brought to be designing something for the general public for lots of people instead of designing mm. a singular house for you know a couple or a family you're, you're making more impact on more people yeah and that was the same with schools but the one the second project I worked on was for an order of nuns in Cork and that was the South Presentation Order and what they this was the order that started education in all of Ireland before the government was dealing with mainstream education. And now that in their enclosed order, they had about five elderly nuns living there. They knew they needed to do something with their building moving forward. And the government weren't dealing with, um, well, they wanted to do something that the government weren't dealing with, which was people that didn't fit mainstream education. Wow. So they were looking at putting a not school into that place. Wow. And as part of that project, they had as one of their educational specialists, Professor Stephen Happel, and another one was Sean McDougall from Stakeholder Design, also in the UK. And so for me, being part of that project, like I was exposed to this whole different world of educational thinkers and essentially wow. what learning could be. Wow. And so that was the beginning of my journey of getting into the research side, realizing there's this whole new world and just digging deeper and deeper in relation to how I, as an architect, could support and help influence this way of thinking. Wow, that is fascinating. And so many, so many questions I have for you about that. Um, uh, I actually uh, interviewed Professor Heppel last night and he was, at one of the most it was one of the most fascinating conversations I have ever had and um it was just um just so inspiring I was absolutely exhausted after our wide-ranging discussion and I went to bed uh but really 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 interesting so it's, it's lovely to see that there's a um, a relationship with you both there it's really interesting to see Stephen's been such a huge influence on me and we've collaborated oh. on things since. And yeah. so that's really nice, that connection. Yeah, really lovely. And, and I'm just going to digress for a moment. Uh, you mentioned retail design. Do you have any thoughts on how the retail space is changing? Well, I think, as you say, the online um, world of retail is growing and, yeah. and becoming a huge thing. But I think what's really important, they the, the retailers are also recognizing the importance of the physical yeah. and creating an experience yeah. for people to want to come to so that people yeah. actually get to understand the brand um, yeah. and want to buy into it so that they can continue to buy online. So it's so yeah. fascinating, isn't it? And and like sorry, this is just an aside, but for me, I would now take my children to Westfield for the experience of going to Westfield. Um, because Everything I can get at Westwood, I can get online now. Um, I can, and for the same price. So there's really no need to interact with people anymore, especially with great refund and return policies. But it is, it, I just find that really fascinating, the, uh, the investment into these new uh, 
um, collaborative spaces, these new uh, places where um, shopping is an experience as opposed to just a transaction. But yeah, really, really interesting, yeah. I was just thinking that's very much like the way in which we think about sticky learning environments, the sticky mm. university campus, that you actually have to think about the experience in order to draw people there because you want to create that vibrancy which draws them back. Fantastic. I um, I did an interview a little while ago uh, with um, a, a gentleman uh, from Tezuka Architects uh, in uh, Japan who developed the, uh, the circular kindergarten, uh, which yeah. I think is so simple and so genius. And he was saying that the great thing is that if, if kids have enough and decide to run away, they will eventually just come back because it's a circle. Um, but I find that space endlessly fascinating. I would love to visit it once all of this COVID is over. Um, but yeah, are you familiar with that space? Oh, yes. I've yeah. visited a few times. Have you visited it? Wow. Yeah. And it's definitely as good and it's way better, actually, than the pictures. Yeah. And I know, um, I actually know Taka well. Oh, Taka wow. And have collaborated with him on a few things. And um, yeah, we... We dovetail really well with That's our nice. work where I bring the, the learning thinking in terms of the pedagogical uh, opportunities of space. And then he brings his incredible, beautiful, creative brain of amazing. how to wrap that around amazing architecture. Amazing. And it, it's, I would love to visit that. So I will uh, let you know when I can finally get over there and uh, how the space when you feel. Um, I just want to read a quote, uh, which I found uh, fascinating from your website. And it says, I... A 2018 study of 20 independent schools in Brisbane revealed that boys' schools had three times the amount of outdoor play space within their immediate school grounds than girls' schools. What role do you think design plays in either reinforcing or breaking down these gender stereotypes? That's fine. <laughs> I think the questions or discussion around gender and school spaces is a really tricky one because mm. often when you get asked about that, you feel like you're being um, asked for a binary answer that yeah. this type of space is That's better true. for boys and this type of space is better for girls. And I know through the research that I've done around that type of thing that, you know, there may be certain propensities for some boys or some girls to like certain things, but you can't stereotype mm. and say that's the case for all of them. Absolutely. And when you step back and look at it, you, you actually realise that you know, spaces that are diverse, spaces that enable choice, spaces that have beautiful light, spaces that are aesthetically pleasing, they're type, the types of spaces that people love, whether they're boys or girls. Exactly, yeah. But having said that, I think that quote that you read is interesting because that um, relates to a little bit of research around outdoor play spaces and schoolyards. Yeah. and particularly the work of um, Fatima Aminpour, where she found that in her research, a lot of girls in particular liked the in-between spaces, not the big open sports fields that often schools are, are synonymous with, but more of these kind of smaller pockets of spaces and even the spaces that are generally out of bounds, the more yeah. intimate spaces. Why is that important in terms of learning spaces or is that important? I think it's definitely important. And I guess one of them is actually the connection to nature is a really important um, yeah. aspect of learning. And in fact, I guess with the Barrett and, and um, Zhang research, it shows that, in fact, you have higher rates of creativity in writing yeah. when you are wow. connected to the outside or connected to nature. Wow. And another thing is that it's a it's an asset. It's like you shouldn't just be thinking outdoors for play and indoors is for learning, but learning can take place anywhere in school. And why not be able to open your doors so that learning can continue to the outside? What has your experience been working on vertical schools? And do you think that that is a, uh, a new trend in terms of school design? Um, I've, I've actually worked on quite a few different vertical schools and, and both in terms of the actual actual buildings, such as APHS yeah. um, from high school in Parramatta, yeah. and also propositions for others. So I do understand what the issues and complexities are of them. 
but maybe just stepping back, there is a, more of a movement or there has been more of a movement towards them over the last maybe six or so years. Yeah. And I mean, definitely that is a response to increasing population, urbanization, and a lack of land. And also yeah. the cost of buying a plot of land in order to create a school big enough to accommodate the population. Yeah, absolutely. And are there the, do, do we still need to have the same considerations when designing these spaces in terms of accessibility, creating opportunities for collaboration, creating equitable spaces, or are there different things we need to consider when um, building within these restraints? I think they're all important, but there are different things because just the practicalities of how do you operate a vertical school come into play and I it's not a matter of just taking a horizontal school and yeah. flipping it upwards flipping it up, yeah. and saying that you know year, year three is here and year four is there but I think you actually need to completely step back and reconceptualize mm. your educational model yeah in order to make that vertical school experience the best ex experience it can be for the students and the teachers using it. And that's Absolutely. possibly quite different. Yeah, it's so important. And I, I was thinking as you were talking about the, the wonderful vertical gardens that are on um, uh, at uh, Central Park um, as you drive through Broadway. And I remember seeing those for the first time and thinking, gardens don't go upwards. And then I thought, hang on a second, what is a garden? Why, or why can't this be the case? And I'm sure that's the same uh, when you're designing some of these new spaces is actually to challenge some of those assumptions and go, okay, like what are the essential qualities of, in this case, a school or a learning environment? And how can we utilize the space that we have um, we have most efficiently? But um, it, it's really, really interesting in seeing uh, some of those, des those designs, um, especially um, schools in the uh, in Sydney and also um, in uh, sort of Western Sydney, so around the Parramatta Way, uh, seeing just how those designs are made. And do you think this is ushering a new uh, era of school uh, learning and design, or do you think we will uh, stick with what we've traditionally known, which is uh, small boxes? I, I don't think we can stick with what we know yeah. because of those pressures that I said. So I, I do think that we will be thinking more about how to, yeah. make the most of what opportunities and land that we can get yeah yeah um which which then also makes you also think about how to be efficient and effective with the vertical school that you put in there because when you think of vertical schools they are generally part of an urban environment and so you've got a community around that school yeah what are the opportunities to make this school the center of the community how do you make it more porous yeah you know, I know you have to deal with security, but you can also deal with porosity at the same time and creating a space for the community, what the school can give back to the community mm. as well. It sounds like your time working in um, uh, exhibition design really, um, really feeds in nicely to what you're doing now, thinking about the ways that people, uh, these spaces are accessible. You're talking about uh, creating porous spaces, collaborative spaces. Um, do you think there's a lot of parallels between what you did previously and what you're currently doing? I, th I think there are, and I, I, you know that was really nice to hear you unpack that because after my first stint as an exhibition designer, yeah. one of my really good friends said to me, as after some conversation, she said, "You think differently now. You you speak differently mm -hmm. about what you do." And I thought, "Wow, really?" Because wow. that's a lovely compliment. It, it was a lovely compliment. And I, I feel like just because you're always so busy doing, yeah, you don't often have the time to step back to reflect on what you've done and why you do it. Yeah. And that's yeah. why it's quite nice to have these opportunities to have these conversations. I think that is like I said, such a wonderful compliment from your friend. And and um have you always been a you seem like an endlessly curious person somebody that asks a lot of questions and and really kind of ponders is that something that you have uh always done or is that something which you have developed that that curiosity uh i suspect it might be something i've always done but i i feel like there was one pivotal point yeah. in my education which was a turning point for me and in 1992, I went on exchange to the University of California in Berkeley yeah. 
Yeah. And I lived in a dorm called International House where there was, I think, 60% international students and 40% Americans from all different ages, all different backgrounds and studies. Yeah. And so I just met so many fascinating people. I, you know, I learned about my lawyer friends and other types. I had a roommate who was studying political science. So that really opened my mind to yeah. different ways of thinking and that was exciting. Yeah, wow, that's really that's really cool. Not all schools uh, will have access to these wonderfully designed learning spaces. Um, not all schools will have the funds to uh, completely uh, rethink their learning environments. So what advice do you have to those principals and educators um, when they're thinking about creating these inspiring learning spaces on a budget? I think that's entirely possible. Yeah, wow. And and I feel and I've seen it in action actually. One through my research, where part of my research involved participatory action research with teachers from two different schools. Yeah. And in that re research, they reflected on what the issues were, and they determined what easy fixes they could make to their spaces to trial and test and come back with. Yeah. So that was. A simple matter of moving furniture around wow. Wow. and um, involving the, the research of understanding what they wanted to achieve by doing so so mm -hmm. that, that's one easy thing I also learned through my research other teachers who they might um, open a door that was constantly closed between two classrooms but actually just open it yeah. and see and those teachers would start to collaborate yeah or, wow. um, and also, I found in a research experience that I did in-house at Hayball with IGS, with my daughter's kindergarten class at the time. And through this experience, which we called Educator for an Hour, where architects came into the learning space and they did reading and maths with these five-year-olds to understand how space influenced these children's learning experiences. Wow. But we, through that, we actually reflected with the teacher about what we found and what we saw and what the opportunities were. Mm. He got interested in it. She went away and did research over Christmas, looked up IKEA catalogs, and term one next year, she had completely transformed her classroom, both through moving furniture, buying floor um, rugs, and using her columns in a really clever way to create nooks and crannies and to put lego and lego things on the walls so to, uh, and yeah. that was a transformation so i feel yeah, like yeah. there's lots of things you can do on a shoestring and i also think stephen heppel's got some great examples of that in madrid which people can look up yeah fiona and your work is uh endlessly fascinating and and so extensive i mean there's no way we could um, have talked about it all uh, during this short uh, discussion. But with the, COVID, the current COVID pandemic, most uh, teachers, or well, all teachers are, are working from home and obviously classroom spaces are vacant. Um, do you still think space, spaces are really important? And what has this, this uh, pandemic taught us about the importance of the physical environment for classroom spaces? I definitely think space is important still. Good. And... <laughs> Yeah, otherwise I wouldn't have a job. Yes. Um, I, I can see that I think the teachers have transitioned so quickly and done a great job of trying to make the most of a difficult situation with this remote learning. Yeah. But you can see that one of the big things lacking with the remote learning is the social side of education. Yeah. Like kids really miss learning with other people, having other people around them and playing with other people. Yeah. And that's why you need to come together physically. Yeah, yeah. What this pandemic, one of the things this pandemic has taught me is just the importance of schools as spaces. Um, and obviously the role of the teacher is absolutely paramount, paramount but also the role of, of learning spaces is, is more important now than it ever has been before. And so, um, uh, Fiona, I just wanted to thank you uh, for taking the time. Uh, thank you for calling me while um, juggling your professional career and your parenting responsibilities and all of that other life admin. And I'm incredibly grateful for your work. Where can people find out more about you and follow some of the work that you are currently engaged in? First of all, thanks so much for the conversation. I've enjoyed it too. 
And um, secondly, I'm on LinkedIn, so they can connect with me there. And I'm also on Twitter, Fiona Y27. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I'll make sure that I put in all of those uh, contact details into our show notes. Um, but like I said, I, I couldn't, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. It's been wonderful uh, to chat to you and thank you for everything that you are doing to um, help create a wonderful collaborative and meaningful learning spaces for our children. So uh, keep up the good work. Thanks so much. Thanks, Fiona. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. I've one favour to ask. If you could please head to the iTunes page of the podcast and rate and review the episode. This would really help to get the interviews and resources to as many people as possible. Also, I've created a private Facebook group so that we can continue the discussion after each episode. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and until next time.